Hey guys, two housekeeping notes. This episode is part of our series on the opium trade in China. It is a standalone that originally was supposed to be the coda to the last episode, but considering that it's an hour in length, you can kind of see why we split it into its own separate episode. It's been written so that you don't need much context on the opium trade to enjoy it, but if you like context, you might want to start with the last episode before moving to this one. It's certainly our least criminal episode we've ever done. A lot of it is on the military conflicts themselves. So if you are a hardcore history fan, you'll probably love this one. For everyone else, I have at least one more episode written on the opium trade, so look forward to that. Second, if you enjoy our content and haven't already, please leave us a five-star or written review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. When other people see that you enjoy the show, they get interested in what we do and that helps us reach more listeners. We can't thank you enough for listening to us, and we have some exciting announcements coming down the pipeline for you. Until then, please enjoy this special episode of High Crimes in History. This episode is based off the works The Opium Wars, The Addiction of One Empire and the Corruption of Another by W. Travis Haynes and Frank Sinello. And The Opium War, Drugs, Dreams, and the Making of Modern China by Julia Lovell. This episode contains descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for everyone. When I was a kid, I used to always dream in class. Daydream, space out, let my imagination wander. I always had a few scenarios whirling around in my head that I'd drop and pick up where I'd left off, like reading a book. Once it was done, I'd go back, replay it again in my head, this time changing a few things here and there. And one of my favorite scenarios I'd play in my head would be that of a lone gunslinger, packed in modern weaponry. Assault rifle, machine gun, Kevlar camo, and he'd waltz into some medieval village in Europe up to the castle gates. He'd demand to see the king, and inside he'd offer his services in exchange for a bunch of land. When he'd be called up to war, he'd train a few dozen peasants how to use a cachet of weapons he had brought from the future, how he got them there I never really thought through. And on the day of battle, the brave knights of the enemy would charge this little ragtag group of peasants, and they'd be mowed down by modern weaponry. It was a total fantasy. I'm sure if someone psychoanalyzed it, they'd come away with some sort of like description of how violence and patriarchy has corrupted my youth, and I don't know if I would argue with them on that. But I'm not the only one, it seems, to have thought of what would happen if a modern military met like a medieval or ancient society. One of my favorite books, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain, is this idea given a tragic comic spin. A popular Reddit thread circulated on who would win a single marine expeditionary unit or the whole Roman Empire. And then James Irwin, a military historian, wrote a short story about the whole thing that was bought up by Warner Brothers to be made into a movie. Here's to hoping that actually sees the light of day. But it's one of those great fantasy history counterfactuals. What would happen if a modern engagement of guns and artillery and iron ships looked like against bows and arrows, swordsmen, 
pikemen. Okay, while we're in the realm of counterfactual, let me give you a new one. Let's say, for the sake of a good story, the modern United States is in the midst of a war against the drug trade with Mexican cartels today. Sounds familiar. And while I'm not discounting the horrors of that war, over 150,000 people have been killed, universally Mexican citizens, for the United States, this is really just a border skirmish. It provides a nice boogeyman for some people, but really, I don't think anyone doubts that the United States could probably turn up with its army and nuclear arsenal and wipe the cartels into a nuclear parking lot if they weren't worrying about civilian casualties, which they would be, but I'm trying to clear the disparity in armament here. But suppose one day, cartel sicarios showed up on the border with weapons out of a sci-fi movie. Starships, laser weapons, stuff that can bombard the United States from space. Nuclear weapons just fizzle on them. And then they start taking major cities on the southern border. San Diego, Tucson, Albuquerque, El Paso. They don't even take any casualties. And meanwhile, they're dishing them out in the tens of thousands on the United States. And when the United States decides to parlay, they only ask for one thing. Open up your country to our drug trade, and we won't turn you into the parking lot. It's crazy, right? But these two scenarios, the medieval versus modern, the sci-fi cartels versus the United States, both are about the disparity in military power. And if we fuse them together, it will be a lot like the opium wars in China. Last episode, we talked about how the opium trade in China has grown so large that the Chinese in the 19th century decide that the only way to eradicate it is to throw out the illegal foreign merchants participating in it. But that action sparked a war between the medieval and the modern. To the British, the aggressors, it looked a lot like that lone gunslinger mowing down medieval troops on a battlefield. To the Chinese, it was more like the Mexican cartels showing up with spaceships to attack the largest, most powerful empire at the time. This was an assault on an empire that was fully expected for one side and a complete surprise for the other. All of it to open a drug trade to China that would destroy it from within. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. July of 1839, a group of English and American sailors stumbled into the village of Jian Shui, north of the island of Hong Kong, and across a stash of Sam Shu, a rice liquor laced with arsenic. Downing the whole cache, they then drunkenly brawled through the village with the locals, destroying a small temple and leading to the death of one of the villagers. Once the Chinese government found out, they immediately called for the extradition of the perpetrators presumably to sentence them to the traditional Chinese execution of strangulation. Instead, the British tried six of the suspects aboard a ship off Chinese coastal waters and found five of them guilty of riots, but not murder. In fact, they weren't even charged with murder in the first place, so there was never any chance that they could even be found guilty of it. Their sentence was a measly 25 pounds and six months imprisonment in England 
When they arrived there, months later, they were immediately freed with the reasoning that the trial had no jurisdiction. Then, on August 24th, only a week after the sentencing, the merchant ship Harriet arrived in the Portuguese trading colony of Macau, 60 miles from Canton, towing another merchant ship, the Black Joke. The Black Joke's decks were slick with blood. No crew on board. One shivering survivor, Joe Moss, was found hugging the ship's rudder, earless. It had been stuffed into his mouth when Chinese raiders had boarded the ship and massacred every person. He had only survived because the raiders thought he was mortally wounded. They ransacked the ship and fled before they could burn it down, as was their original goal. Now it's not clear if these two incidents are connected. It's not even clear if the raiders were Chinese soldiers. Some historians think that they were Lascar pirates, a pirate of the Indian Ocean. But it's hard not to put the two together when the dates occur so close together. It looks exactly like the Chinese had ordered a revenge hit on the British sailors for the injustices at that village. British Superintendent of Trade in China, Charles Elliot, certainly thought they were. He ordered all British citizens out of Macau and to Hong Kong, where he had at least some warships nearby. So the Chinese cut off the citizens' water supply in Hong Kong to force them out of China entirely. Refusing to back down, on September 3rd, 1839, Elliot ordered his three warships to attack the Chinese patrolling the Hong Kong harbor. At 2 o'clock, the first cannon shots opened up. The broadsides went out, and the first hits of the First Opium War were struck. One of Elliot's clerks wrote, quote, We gave them three such broadsides that it made every rope in the vessel grin again. We loaded with grape the fourth time and gave them gun for gun. The shrieking on board was dreadful, but it did not frighten me. This is the first day I ever shed human blood, and I hope it will be the last. End quote. This skirmish at Kowloon, as it's known, ended quickly and anticlimactically. The British ran out of ammunition and both sides retreated. Only a half dozen people died between them, but hundreds of thousands of more would die in the coming years of conflict. It's interesting to see how events in history sometimes come crashing into each other, in that hindsight 2020 sort of way. Oftentimes people talk about history like it's predetermined, at least to an extent. Like the one I always hear is, well, if Adolf Hitler hadn't attacked Russia, he never would have lost the war. Really? You don't think there was a strategy to invade Russia that couldn't have worked? I've heard everything from invading the southern border from the Middle East to just not exterminating the Jews and instead putting them to work in German factories. But the fact is, is that it wasn't a foregone conclusion. The opium wars in China are just the same. You have to remember that the British merchants who are trading in opium illegally could have packed up and went home. So could Elliot. More importantly, none of them are British Army. Or the British Parliament, as we'll see. They aren't exactly keen on starting a war over what they see as a trade dispute. And I think it's a little easier for us to sympathize with the Chinese because they don't have many options. I've read from quite a few historians, and they all differ to how much the opium trade was affecting the continent at this point, but suffice to say that legalizing opium would blow the trade wide open. And China wasn't okay with that to begin with. Because if the population was hooked on opium, then it couldn't be hooked on anything else the Chinese wanted to feed them. Julia Lovell writes, quote, 
The only anxiety that runs consistently through Qing attempts to do something about opium concerns the question of social control. Drugs have a universal talent for dismaying the authorities. Not only do they consume otherwise usefully productive money and time, but more crucially, they loosen inner psychological constraints and the sense of restraint that holds convention together. Disquiet about the threat to stability posed by a hedonistic opium culture lurks in every official statement on the drug in the century preceding the Opium War. The first edict of 1729 punished opium, selling by reference, quote, the law on heterodox teachings that delude the masses, end quote. The menace that had been identified, therefore, was not physical, but psychological, the possibility of public disorder, end quote. China can't have the British import their opium, because if they do, at least they believe, they will have political instability on their hands. China is already an empire at this time that's more of a mishmash of cultures and religions and people that don't always get along, so they have enough internal problems to deal with. When Elliot opens fire with his three warships, the Chinese responded in kind, perhaps not realizing that this little trade dispute would lead to the worst wars in Chinese history. After the skirmish at Kowloon, Elliot receives a letter that the British will send him 16 vessels by next summer to protect his trade, but he doesn't feel like he has time to wait. Two months later, he launches another attack on November 3rd, 1839, this time with two warships. It's known as the First Battle of Xuanpi. If you're playing a numbers game, you'd bet on the Chinese on this one, because at this battle, and a lot of the battles we'll see, they severely outnumber the British. 26 ships to Britain's two. But if you were playing the numbers game, you'd be dead wrong. As the British ships sail into range, the Chinese warships begin to pour cannon fire on these British ships, and they can't even land a hit. Each shot flies wide over the British masts and into the water behind them. The British return fire, and it's deadly accurate. One of the Chinese warship magazines immediately explodes. Elliot writes, it's at pistol shot distance from his deck, so it's like 50 feet away from the British, and it goes up in smithereens and straight to the bottom. And quickly, three more Chinese junks follow it. The sailors on these other Chinese ships, in a panic that their ship is next to be hit, begin to jump overboard, and the fleet retreats before it can lose any more men, several of their ships taking on water. What gives? Why couldn't they hit anything? Well, this is the part of the war that makes it so fascinating to somebody like me who plays those weird counterfactual fantasies in their head. Because it turns out that the Chinese weren't fighting a modern war. They were fighting one from 400 years ago. You see, by this point, European armies look similar to the Napoleonic Wars they had just happened, which to us modern readers seems closer to like 1600 than it does 2019, right? But that's because we've had the advantage of the Industrial and Technological Revolution. The tanks, the airplanes, the machine guns, the nuclear weapons. But you have to remember that Europe had a similar technological leap in technology around the time of the Renaissance. The invention of gunpowder, of accurate firearms, that sort of thing. And then they've had 400 years to perfect it. So all the little inventions you don't think of, like, oh, let's build these cannons on wheels so that you can move them around the battlefield. Or the tactics, like, oh, when you have one group kneel and reload, the next group can fire over their heads. They've built all of these little pieces up. 
So when they step onto the battlefield with the Chinese in 1839, they're showing up with rifles that could put a spin on a bullet to 200 yards. Their navy is clad in copper-plated hulls. In fact, they'll show up at the very first all-iron war steamship in 1841. Meanwhile, the Chinese have a lot of men, 800,000 in their army, to the British's original 7,000, but they have two problems. One, the vast majority of that army is tied up in duties all around the empire, from suppressing revolts to basic domestic police work. Even if they do want to move them, the only way to do so in 1839 is by foot, since the British will control the waves, and that can take over a month just for them to come from the neighboring province. Sometimes, they have to cross several provinces just to get there, and the British can move their reinforcements from India to China in the exact same time. Second, they are woefully under-equipped. They're showing up with bows and arrows, pikes, halberds, the occasional matchlock rifle that misfires 15% of the time in good weather. Their artillery is pitiful, sometimes it's hundreds of years old, and rusting so bad that one observer in 1836 quipped that they were honeycombed. Often, their cannons don't have sighting devices, so they can't even figure out what they're hitting except by visually watching the shot land somewhere and then trying to account for it. And those cannons that the Chinese had mounted on their ships, firing at the British, they were bolted directly into the ship, so they couldn't even swivel to aim at the ships, and in choppy waters, that meant that their shots are either going really high or really low. They're used to fighting battles with peasants and horsemen on the steppe, and they didn't really need to invent weapons that could fight European groups. So this is like late Middle Ages, Hundred Years War weaponry. As Haynes put it, quote, it would be the medieval era fighting against the industrial age, end quote. And then, of course, that leads me to ask, well, why is it that they were so ill-equipped to deal with the British? It's not like they haven't been around for a few hundred years. Well, first, the Qing Empire had not dealt with external threats on this order of magnitude since its inception in 1644, 200 years before this. They were constantly dealing with major internal rebellions. Some half-dozen major revolts occurred in the last 150 years that resulted in millions of deaths. But again, most of these are just peasants. And there's a lot of them, and really it does come down to how many more men you have rather than how they're equipped. Second, it was a large empire, and they had a lot of borders to look towards. So if a few British merchant ships are threatening just a handful of cities on their southern coastline, that really didn't look that disturbing to them, at least from the outside and in context. And three, as we've mentioned before, the different cultures and regions of China were highly distrustful of each other. Lovell writes, quote, by the start of the 19th century, it becomes remarkably difficult to define what European observers so confidently called China. What we have here instead is a crossbred state, held together by coercive cosmopolitanism, by a sense of unbounded entitlement to rule and control, justified by the Confucian mandate of heaven, the Manchu way, Tibetan spirituality, and European firepower. The great Qing emperors tried to be all things to all their people great conquerors, preaching the superiority of their ethnic heritage, learned Confucian poets, scholars, receivers of tributaries, Buddhist messiahs. While the foundation stones of the empire, the economy, and the army were prospering, success seems to have kept this multi-ethnic balancing act in place. But once these same things sank into decline at the close of the 18th century, 
the whole edifice of empire began to shake. End quote. In other words, this is a war that, once it does get started, is going to be extremely one-sided. And the question is whether the British can get the ball rolling quick enough. That isn't necessarily predetermined either. Although the Opium War started with a bang, it didn't really seem that way to either the Emperor, Emperor De Guang, or the British government. A case in point, Haynes writes, quote, On September 1st, 1839, that's a few months before all of this conflict kicked off, Lin received a letter from the emperor that demonstrated the imperial court's demonization and ignorance of the foreigners, which only made Lin's job dealing with them that much harder. The emperor wanted to know if it was true that the barbarians bought thousands of female children and used them in their diabolical rites. Lin wrote back that the foreigners employed Chinese adults as plantation workers and miners, and a handful of youngsters worked with them, but no black magic was involved in their employment. The emperor also inquired about the claim that imported opium contained human flesh, which the emperor suspected might explain the drug's preternatural addictive power. Lin knew the rumor to be preposterous, but it amounted to lese majeste, to contradict the son of heaven, so the diplomatic diplomat replied that opium might contain the flesh of crows, and second-handedly of humans, based on his knowledge that Indian importers of opium allowed crows to eat human corpses as a ritual means of disposing the dead. End quote. Now there's a bit of a question of whether the emperor truly believed these ramblings, or if he simply was looking for a scapegoat for the tr country's troubles. Haynes thinks it's the former level the latter. But that sort of condescending attitude to the British in the opium crisis is the greatest roadblock for the Chinese. If they wanted to have any chance to win this war, they need to move troops to these coastal rivers and cities. Instead, the emperor, when he hears about the war, thinks it's a minor border conflict, sort of like how the United States thinks about the cartels today. Lovell writes, quote, At the time that it was fought, by contrast, most of the Chinese empire, including a number of those who were supposed to be directing proceedings, had some difficulty acknowledging an opium war with the English was happening at all. The emperor had practically no idea he was supposed to be at war until the end of July of 1840, almost a year after the British judged that armed hostilities had commenced. He had little clue as to why English guns were pummeling his empire's east coast until the second week of August that year, when the fleet sailed into Tianjin, the nearest port to Beijing, to deliver a letter from the British Foreign Secretary to the Minister of the Emperor. After the conflict's existence was at last officially acknowledged, the Emperor and his men still had trouble, dignifying it with the term war, preferring to name it a border provocation, or quarrel, atomized into a series of local clashes along China's maritime perimeter. Even while they were routing, with the newest military technology of the day, badly trained and directed Chinese armies, the British were identified in court documents of the time as clowns, bandits, pirates, robbers, rebels, occasionally the outrageous rebels, temporary insurgents against a world order still firmly centered in the Qing state. This in the eyes of China's rulers, was just another aggravation, no more worrying than the other domestic and frontier revolts of the government that it was struggling to suppress around the same time. End quote. China has severely underestimated the power of the enemy that they're up against. 
and they're not moving fast enough to capitalize on the lack of British reinforcements. By the end of June, six months after the first commence of hostilities, 17 warships, including three ships of the line and 27 troop ships, arrived. With them came 10,000 chests of opium, so many that then when they were offloaded in broad daylight, the price of opium plummeted as competitors sought to undercut each other's prices. On July 4th, the real fighting of the war began at Dinghai, a port city of 40,000 people on Chusan Island. They were defended only by 1,600 men armed with spears, bows and arrows, and a few matchlocks that they only practiced with once a year. They guarded an earthen fort. Chinese warships were also in port. But when the British fleet opened up its guns as their regiments made an amphibious assault, from one eyewitness, quote, The crashing of timber, falling houses, and groans of men resounded from the shore. When the smoke cleared away, a massive ruin presented itself to the eye. Crowds were visible in the distance, flying in all directions. End quote. In 45 minutes, the Chinese fleet had been destroyed or was routing. The men were ashore, and the city was captured by the next day. Almost all of its inhabitants fled. 2,000 Chinese were dead. Only 19 British had died. 45 minutes. That's all it took. This is going to be repeated again and again. You want to know what it looks like when a modern army meets a medieval army? It looks like 45 minutes. The British sail into a port, they pound it senseless, they swarm and take its forts, and they move on to the next city. The Chinese did try one last time to placate the British. They sent an emissary, Qi Shan, to talk, but the talks quickly broke down as Qi Shan called the former diplomats tribute bearers, quite an insult to the British Empire. And Elliot responded with demands that the Chinese allow for the opium trade to continue, citing, quote, If the Chinese wanted the opium trade to end, they should stop using it, end quote. But that's farcical. The opium trade never died, even after the seizure of opium in Canton like we talked about last episode. It only moved undercover. British opium merchants moved their product to Macau and Hong Kong and operated in secret. At first, the conflict had actually hurt opium consumption. James Matheson, one of the merchants, believed that it had dropped over 93%, and the price of opium shot up through the ceiling as a result. But once the war started, British merchants felt emboldened and began to trade so much so that the price of a chest of opium fell to only $400 as the trade turned into a buyer's market. China's strategy to combat the opium epidemic also didn't help diplomacy. Lin Zexu, if you recall from the last episode, he was the guy who was put in charge of stopping the trade in China, didn't just fight to stop the trade, he fought to stop consumption. Haynes writes, quote, In an edict, Lin gave drug users a limited time to wean themselves from the drug. While the period is not yet closed, Lin said, you are living victims. When it shall have expired, then you will be dead victims. Strangulation would be the fate of unrehabilitated users, Lynn announced. Zero tolerance. End quote. But opium is a powerful drug, and when given the chance to get clean or resist, many addicts turned around and bought firearms from the very opium traders they bought their opium from to protect themselves. They were literally willing to fight government soldiers if they came to seize their drugs. From this zero-tolerance policy came the worst choice that Lin made. 
he decided to attack foreigners on suspicion of the opium trade, regardless of whether they had participated in it or not. Overwhelmingly, these foreigners were innocent. Two missionaries, Williams and Hobson, were attacked in July by a Chinese gang that clubbed the men so violently that they lost the use of an arm and a leg between the two of them. Others were attacked with knives. In August of 1840, right around when the negotiations started, two men, David Abiel and Vincent Stanton, went for a swim in the Bay of Macau. Stanton disappeared, and Lynn admitted in the negotiations that he had abducted the man and sent him to Canton. On September 11, 1840, when a French priest was executed by the Chinese for preaching in another province where Christianity was outlawed, and then on September 15, 1840, a group of 28 British civilians were captured when their ship ran aground near Ningbo, it even got worse. Those civilians were thrown into a prison and brutalized by the Chinese. Those who resisted were killed, and many others died from dysentery. One of the prisoners was the pregnant wife of the captain. Although Lin was fired for failing to stop the opium trade, his no-tolerance policy soured the British to any negotiation or concessions. Elliot was through with diplomacy. It was time for war. On January 7, 1841, Elliot launched the first attack of a campaign to take the city of Canton. Most of these major port cities that we've been talking about sit at either the mouth of a bay or deep inland where the river delta meets the ocean. So, like, Macau and Hong Kong sit on either side of the Oman Bay, while Canton is about 50 to 60 miles inland at the mouth of the Pearl River, where it dumps into the bay. But because these are river deltas, it's not as simple as just, like, sailing up one river. There's sometimes dozens of estuaries, all feeding into these bays, and the Chinese defend and construct their defenses in depth, the idea being that if the Chinese can't solve the problem of quality, they can compensate with quantity. So they build a couple of forts on either side of an estuary, and then another few miles down, there's another couple of forts, and then a few miles down, another few, and so on. So if anyone wants to capture a major city like Canton, they'll have to knock out every single one of these forts. By Western standards, these forts are rudimentary. The walls are made of just earthen embankments with a little bit of granite. In front of the fort would lie a muddy plain with little cover extending to the banks of the river. On the river itself, two lines of wooden rafts were lashed together to prevent an easy amphibious landing. Behind the forts, a third set of defenses sat on the granite cliffs a mile back, and behind those, rice paddy fields and more forts. So this sounds like a World War I set of defenses, except remember, they're armed with medieval weaponry. Even worse, their hope was that the British would just ignore the forts entirely and focus on capturing Canton allowing the forts to pound predetermined spots where the British fleet would be tied up. Remember, they don't have any swivels on their cannons. They can only fire in one direction. But of course, that's wishful thinking. Instead, on January 7th, 1,600 British and Indian Marines landed at the forts of Taikau Tao and Chuan Bi, with a withering naval cannonade pounding the forts. And I mean pounding. These are just forts made of mud, essentially. No cover from the air. 8,000 Chinese defenders are basically sitting in glorified sandcastles, and they're blown apart. The Chinese defenders flee in terror, and in 25 minutes, the British Union Jack fluttered over the forts. 600 Chinese had been killed, and the British hadn't lost any man. The few men who were wounded 
had been wounded by their own faulty artillery piece when it overheated and exploded. And if that wasn't a slaughter, it would grow even worse from there. Haynes writes, quote, The Chinese defenders fled the city, but a flanking move by Major Pratt of the 26th Regiment forced the refugees back into the fort. Ship's artillery shelled the city, killing many of the defenders. The Nemesis and other British ships went in for the kill, setting ablaze 11 Chinese warships at anchor in the mouth of the river and using rockets as incendiaries. The Chinese artillery at the fort and aboard war junks did not return fire. To escape the deadly bombardment, some defenders jumped into the water, where gunfire from British ships killed many of them. Others inside the fort were burned and disfigured when their antiquated matchlock gunpowder exploded, their misery compounded by British gunfire. End quote. I forgot to even mention it, at this battle is when we see the very first all-iron steam warship, the Nemesis. It's the equivalency of a tank taking on a medieval army by itself. It's devastating. Haynes continues, quote, The successful seizure of Schwan B was followed by a naval battle that was more like a rout at Anson's Bay to the east of Schwan B. There, the steamship Nemesis demonstrated that it was a navy unto itself by firing on 15 Chinese war junks. A rocket from the Nemesis had the blind luck of hitting one of the junks' powder magazines, and the ship was blown to pieces. At the sight of this ferocious new technology and its devastating effects, the 14 remaining junks began to flee, but not fast enough for some of the terrified crew, who jumped overboard. End quote. Captain Hall of the Nemesis recalls, quote, one of the junks blew up with a terrific explosion, launching into eternity every soul on board, and pouring forth its blaze like a mighty rush of fire from a volcano. The smoke and flame and thunder of the explosion, with portions of dissevered bodies scattering as they fell, were enough to strike with awe the stoutest heart that looked upon it. End quote. In every English eyewitness account I've read of this battle, the writers are horrified at how destructive their own firepower is. Lovell writes, quote, Expecting a fight to the death, the Qing soldiers were mowed down by gunfire, threw themselves off the fort's cliff and into the water below, or attempted futile resistance. The fort's commander, one Chen Lianxing, fought until every part of his skin was perforated from the gunfire that rained on him, while his son, maddened with grief, fell soon afterwards. The scene inside the forts, their brain-spattered walls, their blent, blackened, smoldering, stinking human remains, struck the conquering British as terrible. A frightful scene of slaughter ensued, recalled one lieutenant's memoir, in a section titled, triumphantly, Small Loss of the British. In one spot, the bodies of the slain were found literally three or four deep. The sea was quite blackened with corpses, described an army doctor. Many wounded Qing soldiers were burned alive when falling to the ground with their matchlock guns. Their matches set fire to the packages of gunpowder that they carried, strapped to the chests and waists of their cotton-padded uniforms. End quote. This is what it looks like when a modern army meets a medieval army on the battlefield. You could argue it's even a war crime. The desolation is so powerful that Elliot pauses the attack after the first fort, because he's so horrified by the bloodshed that he's committed. The Chinese waste no time in asking for a ceasefire, which he grants. Together, he and Qi Shan hash out a truce that includes giving Hong Kong to the British in exchange for $6 million, 
but neither the British Prime Minister nor the Emperor agree to the terms. In fact, the Prime Minister, Palmerston, doesn't even understand why Elliot doesn't just press the advantage and force the Chinese to agree to opening more ports to the British merchants. The Emperor, meanwhile, is in a totally alternate universe. He thinks that the Chinese still have the advantage, so much so that he orders Elliot to report to the capital for his own execution. Like he's going to follow that. On February 26th, the British fleet shells the remaining forts again, and within 15 minutes the Chinese are waving the white flag of surrender. Some of the Chinese soldiers were so afraid of the torture and mutilation that might follow if they were captured, that when the nemesis came alongside to fish them out of the water, they intentionally drowned themselves by inhaling the sea. After two more weeks of methodically moving up the coast, bombarding forts, and capturing paddy fields, on March 18th, Elliot was back where he began, at the factories in Canton, this time with the Union Jack flying over them. In the space of a few weeks, 2,000 Chinese soldiers had died, thousands more had been captured. Only one British man perished from a faulty musket that exploded in his face. With Canton threatened, the Chinese in the city were forced to agree to a $6 million ransom, twice the amount that the British government earned in taxes on tea in a single year. In return, the British wouldn't sack the city. And while the city's residents accepted the terms, the peasants in the countryside around the city were outraged. You see, the Chinese government was great at spinning each defeat into a victory and circulating these propaganda stories. They'd say things like, a great victory was won over the British as they were routed. It's complete lies, fabrications, but the peasants bought it. So they think that they're winning the war, and they didn't understand why all of a sudden Canton would just give up. These peasant militia will prove to be a thorn in the British side, not because they're a massive threat, but because they can keep pressuring the British through negotiations. The British are in a great position, militarily speaking, but for months the army has been racked by dysentery and malaria to the point that in some of these regiments, there's only a quarter of the men capable of fighting. And that quarter is more than enough for offensive engagements when they're attacking under artillery barrages. But when you start factoring in the amount of peasant militia that can attack them, it starts to look a lot more dicey. For example, on May 29th, a group of British and Indian troops ransacked a village northwest of Canton and raped the women and militia groups hearing of the rape amassed outside the village. By the morning, 7,000 peasant militia, armed mostly with cudgels, hoes, and a few matchlock muskets waited to attack the British, who were only a tenth of that size. To make matters worse, a rainstorm swept in right as the battle began, and the British rifles became soaked and unable to fire. The Chinese circled round, and the only thing that staved them off from a massacre was a group of nearby marines with waterproof percussion muskets that arrived just in the nick of time and punched a hole for the British forces to escape through. So the British are, at least defensively, on their heels, but things are just as bad for the Chinese. Remember, this is an empire that is split with cultural differences, cultures that often hate each other. In Canton, as tensions rise in the city, the fissures between these cultures deepens. Take the normal panic that sets into a threatened city, and that panic multiplies the atrocities that occur between the groups. Lovell writes, quote, Innumerable bodies strewed the streets, observed one resident. All discipline was gone, and the roads were filled with clamor and confusion. Everywhere I saw plunder and murder. 
thousands of our soldiers ran away, having loaded themselves with stolen goods, then pretended that they had lost their way pursuing the enemy. When the British started to fire on the commander's former headquarters, Liang Ting Nan scornfully remarked that the fleas had already jumped. As banditry spread through the province as a whole, the threat of civil war loomed over the city. Tensions were particularly bad between the Hunanese reinforcements, concentrated around the East Gate and the local fighters. Many of the Hunanese had apparently passed the time by sleeping with female lepers, who gave the disease to them. The folk belief was that if a woman could pass the affliction on to a man, she would recover and be able to get married. Another folk belief told that the eating of the flesh of a child would cure the sickness, and so, allegedly, some stole and cooked children in the camp. Outraged, local soldiers then went on a murderous rampage against the Hunanese child-eaters. The bodies were piled high on the drill ground, remembered Liang. Traitors! Traitors! screamed the local militiamen, chasing back inside the city any victims who tried to escape. End quote. Chaos reigns on both sides, so it's understandable why Elliot agreed to the $6 million ransom. But it doesn't last long. When Charles Elliot reached Macau after what could be considered a successful string of military and diplomatic victories, he found a four-month-old London newspaper announcing his dismissal, fresh off the boat of his successor. It turns out that Parliament was unhappy with his continued gunboat diplomacy that emphasized diplomacy over gunboats. Elliot had pursued a strategy of moderation, hoping that goodwill could be built up with the Chinese Empire following the war. But that won him no favors or friends in Parliament, who wondered why, if the British could easily defeat the Chinese, they should settle for $6 million in Hong Kong. Why not open up all of China? Elliot's successor was Henry Pottinger, a 51-year-old veteran of the British Indian Army, and William Parker, a 46-year-old captain of the Napoleonic Wars. With them came another 27,000 British soldiers and 32 ships. Together, they sailed up the coast to Jiamen, a four-day journey from Macau, then Dinghai, another four days above that. Both cities were pounded, their forts destroyed, and the defenders fled or committed suicide. Not stopping to rest, the British sailed up to Zhenghei, the citadel that protected the port city of Ningbo. There, on October 10th, the British shelled the fort. One commander fled, shelled by his own cannons, as they tried to kill him for his cowardice. The other committed suicide by overdosing on opium. Just like the earlier battles, a few thousand Chinese were killed, thousands captured, and tens of thousands fled. The British casualties didn't even number in the triple digits, but again, the British had to stop and recuperate as dysentery set into the army. The British wintered in Ningbo while the Chinese gathered another army to throw at them, and on March 10th, 1842, 5,000 Chinese attacked Ningbo with the intent to capture it. By this point in the war, the Chinese were desperate, and they were attempting tactics that displayed just how much of a pickle they were in. 700 Sichuan Aborigines were attached to the army, and Haynes likens this to how the French and British used Native American tribes in the French and Indian War. They're dressed in tiger skin, complete with head, claws, and tail, carrying spears to throw at the British. Their general, the nephew of the emperor, chose March 10th because it was the Tiger Day of the Tiger Month, which militarily was a very bad day to choose, 
The snow and ice melt turned all of the dirt roads and paths into knee-deep mud, but it's a good morale booster for the men. He even procured 19 monkeys to tie firecrackers to their backs and fling them onto English ships moored at the docks, hoping to cause confusion and fire. At 4 a.m., the British garrison at Ningbo is ambushed by the 5,000-strong force from the west and the south. The battle pushes into the city, most pronounced at the west gate, where 140 British troops face the bulk of these Chinese. Combat was hand-to-hand, British soldiers hurling pieces of the stone down onto the attackers. Finally, a single howitzer was set up in the narrow street, not 20 yards from the Chinese forces. Lovell writes, quote, Squeezed into a narrow, straight street, the mass of attacking divisions provided a continuing supply of new targets for the new gun. The effect was terrific, observed one campaign-hardened officer of the awful scene. Now it's the officer talking. The enemy rear, not aware of the miserable fate which was being dealt out to the comrades in the front, continued to press forward so as to force fresh victims upon the mound of dead and dying. Now back to Lovell. By the time the howitzer fell silent, after only three rounds, there was a writhing and shrieking hectatum, closely packed for fully fifteen yards. End quote. The pile of bodies reached a height of fifteen feet. In the front of this section of troops was the Aborigines, who had brought only long knives to a howitzer fight. Six hundred Chinese were killed. No British died. In the follow-up battles, thousands more Chinese would die, many of them wounded who overdosed on opium to deaden their pain. On May 18, 1842, the British attacks resumed, first at Chapu, then Wusong, then the city of Shanghai, all of them on the Yangtze River. The war goal was the city of Nanking, located inland on the Yangtze. It was the second most populous city at the time, and more importantly, the next major city inland was the Chinese capital of Peking. The British hoped that capturing Nanking would convince the Chinese to capitulate. In each of these places, the British committed atrocities. At Chapu, the British blew up a temple, killing 200 monks inside. They were found huddled together, a charred pile of corpses. One, still alive, stood up and drew his sword, and in front of the British hacked away at his own throat until he collapsed dead. In the city, families were slaughtered, women divided for rape between the British. The prettiest ones were divvied up for the white British, the rest for the Indians. Bodies floated in the canals. In Shanghai, looting picked the city clean of anything of value. Finally, on July 21st, the British attacked the final city before Nanking, the city of Xinjiang. It was already tearing itself apart when the British stormed the walls. The British found the citizens and soldiers alike killing themselves by the dozens, cutting each other's throats, and drowning themselves to save themselves from what horrible fate they imagined awaited them. One new English soldier, Granville Locke, remembers, quote, We entered an open court, strewed with rich stuffs, and covered with clotted blood. And upon the steps leading to the Hall of Ancestors, there were two bodies of youthful Tartars, cold and stiff, much alike, apparently brothers, Stepping over these bodies, we met face to face three women seated, a mother and two daughters, and at their feet lay two bodies of elderly men, with their throats cut ear to ear. The hardest heart of the oldest man who ever lived a life of raping and slaughter 
could not have gazed on this scene of woe unmoved. The expression of cold, unutterable despair depicted on the mother's face changed to the violent workings of scorn and hate, which at last burst forth in a paroxysm of invective, afterwards in floods of tears. Her gestures spoke of her misery, of her hate, and I doubt not her revenge. End quote. The general of the city was found on a pyre built from his own official papers and set alight. All that was left of him was a charred skull and some leg bones. As they left the city, a proclamation for the British reminded the citizens why they had even attacked them in the first place. On September 5th, the proclamation read, stating for the residents to visit Sui Shan, quote, where opium is on sale, very cheap, an opportunity not to be missed. End quote. Faced with the potential ruin of Nanking, and soon to be the capital, the Chinese surrendered. On August 29th, 1842, they signed the Treaty of Nanking. China agreed to pay $21 million in reparations to the British and give them permanent residence in Canton, Amoy, Ningbo, Shanghai, and Fuzhou, where they could trade freely with anyone. They also ceded Hong Kong as a permanent colony to the British. In return, the British would release the blockade of Nanking. Although the opium trade was not legitimized, by opening up the ports to all trade, it was an effective blanket statement that the trade would be free to all who wished to engage in it. For this, at least 25,000 Chinese lost their lives, but only 69 British or Indian soldiers died in the conflict. The end of the war garnered a myriad of responses. Some British citizens believed that the war was a necessity to open up the rest of the world to China, but many others thought it was an embarrassment saying, quote, there is no honor to be gained in a war like that, end quote. Why does the First Opium War deserve its own episode? Well, it was the powder keg exploding, if that powder keg was filled with opium. With the opening of more ports, the drug moved from the coastal cities into the interior of China. Opium addictions doubled over the next decade. Other nations realized that they, too, could bully the Chinese into submission. The French signed their own treaty in 1844, only a couple years after the war had ended, and it granted the same concessions as the British got. And of course, with the rise of opium addiction, so too did crime. The poison trade, as the opium trade became known as, rose in conjunction with a new trade called the pig trade. Only the term pig was a derogatory term for the Chinese citizens drugged with opium kidnapped, and sold overseas in an illegal slave trade by British traders. The conditions were similar to that of the African slave trade. But these weren't the only instabilities hammering China. The emperor died in 1850, leaving the court in a bind. Humiliation of the dynasty by the British and the trade imbalance, coupled with major famine in the regions, sparked the Taiping Rebellion the largest conflict in the 19th century, involving all of China. If you thought 25,000 citizens was bad, over 20 million people would die over the next 15 years, mostly from plague and famine as conflict raged across the empire. And it's a horrifying conflict, 
certainly warranting its own episode, although we don't have the time. And that rebellion can be at least partially attributed to the lure of opium, for the philosophy of the Taiping followers was that of opium abstinence. As Hain writes, quote, The Taiping Rebellion was at once a political military force and a proto-12-step program for recovering addicts, a form of liberation theology that liberated its adherents from substance abuse, and it was hoped from an abusive central authority. End quote. In other words, opium is part of the reason why the Taiping Rebellion even exists in the first place. And through all, all this, the opium trade continues to rise, staving off the ruin of a British commerce. By 1850, illegal opium accounted for 20% of the British Empire's revenue, but it wasn't enough. As it turns out, opium was about the only thing that the Chinese were interested in that the British were selling. Meanwhile, the British were still in a trade imbalance with them, mostly because British citizens were crazy for the Chinese tea and silk markets. So, when, on October 8, 1856, 14 years after the signing of the Treaty of Nanking, a joint Chinese-British ship was seized by the Chinese at Canton on accusations of piracy, British merchants saw another possibility for sparking a war to force even greater concessions from the Chinese. But the First Opium War isn't some prologue to the Second. In fact, it's so much more important. The war revealed the Qing Empire as a paper tiger to its own citizens and the rest of the world. The fact is not disputed by historians or contemporaries. In fact, in the 20th century, Chinese nationalists marked the war as the beginning of what they coined the Century of Humiliation. Some historians, mostly revisionists, argue that, well, if Britain wasn't going to do it, it was going to be another nation. But that belies the fact that none of the other nations, with the exception of the French and Turkey, were engaging in the opium trade. And I think it should be really clear from the last episode that while the Chinese had a very um, demeaning diplomacy towards the Europeans, diplomacy could have prevented this war if it weren't for the immediacy of the opium epidemic. While it was British marines storming the earthen forts of the Chinese coast, it was opium that had led to assault. From the words that echoed in Parliament's halls to the letters of Chinese officials that made their way back to Peking. The First Opium War might have assaulted the empire, but because of the British intervention, over the next century, opium would destroy the Qing Empire. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. 